Hey elephants, hope you're all doing well. This week marks the end of Black History Month, and in Black History Month, LifeSearch's Fairness and Diversity Squad have been celebrating within LifeSearch, and so, in an effort to make some of those celebrations external, I invited one of LifeSearch's newer leaders to come and talk. He is Melvin Noaje, and as well as being a leader at LifeSearch, he is also one of the founding members of the Fairness and Diversity Squad, a group set up in the wake of George Floyd's murder to aid life search in becoming actively anti-racist. Here's Melvin, me, and my dad. Melvin, have you ever been a leader before? Like before life search? I actually have. Um, I had about uh, 20 years leadership experience before life search. I started out in the nightclub business. This was, what, 1996, showing my age here. Uh, I led a team of 30 people, 20 bar team and 10 dormant. Whereabouts was the nightclub? Manchester. Okay. Indie nightclubs in Manchester. In the, in the 90s? In the 90s. The you days must of have the seen some stuff. <laughs> um, it wasn't the Hacienda, was it? No, 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 no. But I was there the days it got closed down. You know, you'd go in there and there'd be grenades and gunshots and, and what have you. Um, Mad. It was a dangerous time. It was very, very interesting. It was one of these things when you're young, you feel invincible, so you loved it. But if you asked me to do that now, it would be like, no, thank you. <laughs> I'm quite, quite happy at, uh, working at home. Thank you very much. <laughs> Can you tell us the name of the, the Manchester nightclub? It feels like there might be a few sto- stories there to tell. I was a manager at 42nd Street. I was a manager at a nightclub called Grey's. Um, Grey's was the worst one. We're talking about people attacking you with golden maces. Um, don't ask me why they Sorry. had golden maces. They had golden Gold. maces. Ma- Do you mean a mace spray or a... an actual uh, an actual bat with a chain and a ball on the end with spikes? With spikes. A medieval a medieval uh, knight's mace. mace. Yes, but this is the mentality. <laughs> and, well, and you ask yourself the question because we we weren't we weren't actually surprised by the mace. We were more surprised as did they did they come with it hidden in the bushes or. Do you know what I mean? It was like, how did they well, yeah, like, and and also were they? I mean, that's like if you got put in court, and 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 it's not like you just found a golden mace and be like, yeah, sorry, sorry, Gov, I just found it, and I was angry, so I attacked him. You've you've brought that out on a Friday or a Saturday night, and so yeah. you had to make it yourself by hand. So but like, why? Uh, what? I don't. You, I, you, you, asking you had, you why had, would anyone do that? You probably don't know. I don't. This no, is like mentality oh. of that. You search people, and uh, I remember one person had a meat cleaver. Mm. Now there was blood on this cleaver, so we obviously held him until the police came and he got carted off. But the police did tell us it was animal blood, not human. But you have to ask yourself a question: Why would you come to a nightclub with a meat cleaver? And this is why we search people. Before yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. So you obviously retired from this kind of insane <laughs> pace of life to the relatively quiet backwaters of, of, of life search? Absolutely. Um, even before life search, I was actually an enforcement agent for four years. Um, I'm probably known in Milton Keynes, <laughs> knocking on people's doors, <laughs> executing warrants for the magistrates' courts. Absolutely. Um, and so- I used to tell people that's extreme customer service. Because you're doing something incredibly difficult and you have to be as nice as pie about it. So yeah. it's like boot camp customer service to the extreme. Great, great, exciting role, but again, not something you want to do for a long time because it's incredibly hard. You mm. see people at the very lowest of their lives. It's, it's very difficult, very, very difficult. 
Um, sure. and, I, and I couldn't stay. I couldn't stay in there. I'm too nice a guy to stay in there. Yeah, because that's my my overriding kind of feeling I get from you. It's a pretty tough place for such a nice human being. <laughs> I The way I, I sort of balanced that was, would you want me knocking on your door? Or would you want a really nasty piece of work? Mm. Very good. And and that's that's always the way I've, I've just done things. I always had people say, you're far too nice to be doing this. And, and I probably was too nice to be doing it. But I always used to think, well, who would you rather be dealing with? And and I suppose I am a bit of a challenge junkie. I do like difficult challenges. And to me, that was probably one of the most difficult jobs I've actually ever done. Mm. Um, although coming into Life Search, I, I I did have a lot of anxiety because that was my first pretty much office-based role. And I didn't know how it fare being sort of inside because everything else had always been outside on the move, busy, busy, rushing around. Mm. sort of almost like an adrenaline junkie type yeah. role. And then so can you talk about the differences between leading life searchers in a relatively amiable industry job versus the other people that you've led? Yes, having this sort of, this feels a lot more slower and different pace um, to those days. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so after the nightclubs, I moved into retail. It was a bit more formal. You weren't paying people out of the tills, <laughs> yeah. but you were just on your own to do everything. Retail is a very, very hard, fast-paced environment. It's all about targets. It's all about reaching goals. It's It's very little about people. They once asked me, so how how are you getting your people to do what they need to do? We were in a leadership meeting. And and I said, well, I try and find out about them. I take an interest in them. And they usually take an interest in me and through mutual respect and maybe sometimes friendship. I find they just basically perform better. And I was sort of told, well, we don't really pay you to chit chat. You know, you, you're supposed to be going through your targets in that period. And people were surprised that I was taking that sort of line. They found it a bit odd. They said, aren't you supposed to be going for I said, yes, we do that. But and I actually had to, you know, almost fight as to why I had to spend time asking about that. And it was only at Life Search when I realized, ooh, you don't tell people to do things. You can ask people to do things. Okay, Very good. And that was one of the huge differences. But then I sort of put two and two together and realized that my history was all about exploiting talent. <laughs> But life, but life search, we don't exploit talent, we nurture talent. I like it because it was all about driving sales. It was all about driving sales. Retail is about driving sales. You exploit your talent there. Yeah. You don't nurture them. You just exploit them. You use them for what they are, and that's why I like being where I am now. Something you've done relatively recently is move out of the team that you were in into leadership, and I guess you did that in your previous careers as well. What was it like becoming a leader after being a member of the team? Uh, and suddenly having to uh, do that chit-chat thing <laughs> with, uh, with with your old teammates. Well, when you're a team member, I suppose you're like the, the high-flying cool kid on the block. <laughs> but when you move to leadership, you become the man. <laughs> so <laughs> Is that how you felt, like a, you felt like a high-flying cool kid? When, when you, because at the end of the day, you know, we... I've always been in leadership. So when I'm not in leadership, I always feel like I'm working within myself and I find it quite easy to perform to a really, really good high standard. So that's just the sort of person I have. I always want to excel in that way. And I and I see myself as an influencer. So in these situations, you always have people who are a bit more influential and people do gravitate to myself in that way. So, um, and that's how I would have seen myself as just that sort of person. But as soon as, if you're 
if you're promoted, then it's a bit different because you go from that person to, you know, the man without really wanting to. Yes. But that's that's just how it is. It's natural progression. In that way, have you always felt like a, a natural leader? Is that is that something that you believe in, that there are just people who naturally learn how to lead? I think there's definitely natural um, leaders out there. For myself, it's slightly different because I suppose from a young age, I was groomed for leadership. I basically came over when I was six and I was put in boarding school and became a prefect in boarding school. I led rugby teams and then I went to do a management degree. You, know, I was sort of groomed to be that person. And so that's that's what it's always been. So if somebody says, I'm going to promote you or you're, you're now a leader, to me, it's it's not something stepping out of my comfort zone. That's sort of like normal. So I suppose that's my advantage there. I don't have to be nervous in that way that you're now the leader. It's just something that has always been there anyway. So I suppose that's the great thing about um, my, my childhood. It's groomed me for that. What position do you play on the rugby field? Loose head prop. <laughs> formidable. Formidable is the word that springs to mind. But, but it, there was an actual funny bit. I start off with loose head prop, but at the end of the season, I move further out. I can go further out and be a flanker because I get faster. <laughs> oh, so you're fast as well. But usually at the start of the season, if I've not been training properly, it's loose head prop and I have to stay there. So. <laughs> you're not still playing, are you? No, not anymore. No, no, no. no. Okay. Not anymore. <laughs> now being a very specific type of leader of a team in life search do you spend a lot of time thinking about it and sort of mulling it over or is it just something that you just is it just a, a muscle well worked at this point is it just a skill that you have it's it's quite strange because i i don't actually think of myself as or i don't preoccupy myself with thinking about leadership i tend to preoccupy myself with thinking about what i can do better how i can improve things that that's what comes in my mind. It's it's what I take home with me from work. It's that's the preoccupation. So I don't ever really think I'm a leader unless I actually go to a leadership meeting. It's like, oh right, they've invited me to this meeting. So a lot of the time, that's not even in my forethought. I there's there's a lot of day to day that I'm looking to do, and, and that's that's where my my focus, I suppose, is. So I don't really focus on on the fact that I'm a leader. I more focus on what needs to be done, what the tasks are, what I want to achieve, that sort of thing. And do you think your experience as a as a black man has affected your the way you lead? And also, like, I, I hadn't realised before this that you came to England as a six-year-old. Does that inform your experience at all? A lot of um, black leaders probably wouldn't really want to answer this question because they would love to say, no, of course, I, I just lead as normal. But but unfortunately, um, leading as a black guy, you absolutely changes pretty much everything you do. <laughs> you've got you've got no choice. I sort of have been through an industry where there's always been a stigma about um, black people being a bit lazy or lacking literacy and intelligence. I actually wanted to be a hotelier. That's that's what that was my dream. I want to be a hotelier. I took a hotel and coaching management degree, but that environment was so toxic and was so terrible, and minorities were treated so badly that I had to just leave. So, as somebody who's black and a leader, you go into it knowing this. You go into it knowing that you're going to have to work three times as hard as anybody. You can't afford to fail. 
you're not basically there for yourself. You're almost there for your race. And the less of you that they are, the more you want to succeed. And you have to succeed. You can't afford to fail. You know, I've had a couple of people who are quite excited, who are minorities excited about my position because it gives them hope. So you put a lot of these pressure on yourself. I always say you don't need to be preoccupied with it. You just need to be aware of it. But unfortunately, I absolutely do have to change the way I do things. You then get paranoid with when you basically have any sort of conflict or anything like that. Is that somebody not happy with your leadership or is that somebody not happy with you as a you know, black person telling them what to do? So, but again, you can't preoccupy yourself with all these things. You sometimes just have to do what you need to do, but that's always there. Gosh, the the, um, the second guessing the nature of the underlying challenge within one of those you lead, one of your reports, if you like, uh, as to why they're resenting your leadership. Yeah, that's a very specific issue. I suppose basically white leaders don't don't have to address. Yeah, how do you deal with that? You just ignore it. Just get on. The more experience I've gained, I always feel I have an advantage over people because you you learn, you become emotionally intelligent. I think you have lots of different sort of maturities and being emotionally mature is something that some people actually gain later in life. You can only gain that with experience. I think a, a lot of good leaders know, you know, what they need to worry about and hang on to and what they need to discard. So learning what you need to discard is really, really important. So I just try not to preoccupy uh, myself with those thoughts. But they are in the back of my mind. I think you should be aware, but you shouldn't let it control what you do. Sounds very right to me. Do you you know what happened? (laughs) Life search one time. Um, I was basically taking bank deeds as a lady. went, yeah, I don't mind giving them to you as long as you're not Nigerian. (laughs) And then started laughing on the phone. And I was on the phone thinking, do, do I tell her Nigerian or do I? So I just thought, no, just laugh with her. So I went, <laughs> in my best English laugh. <laughs> and just let her oh, get away no. with this. I, mean, I didn't sorry. want to mortify her, though. I didn't. But it's it's. But that's the thing, you know, sometimes people people just forget you just yeah. talking to somebody thinking, actually, I am Nigerian. Yeah. But I let her get away with that one. But. And I should have saved the call to play because it was, it was actually really funny. And I found it very, very funny. But, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you took your leadership at Life Search into a, a, a slightly different space after George Floyd's death uh, when you and others formed the Fairness and Diversity Squad. Uh, what were the initial hopes for, for that group? And were they successful? What has the, the group achieved, do you think? It's actually quite strange because in the wake of that, it was more a case of therapy. I went to that group to sort of vent my frustrations to like-minded people. A lot of people were shocked by that incident, by that murder. But black people weren't shocked. Black people were just reflecting on the ills that happened in their lives. And it was great to be able to go in there and and, and vent and have like-minded people. But as things progressed, we had we sort of realized, hang on a second, we, we're in a unique position here where we've got a lot of experience. We can start doing things. We can start effecting change. And, and we have done, you know, and we've become a more diverse group of people as a result. We've now expanded into disabilities. And if you say, what, what have we done? Well, we're now basically signed up to the Race at Work Charter. Uh, we've increased our minority leadership. 
We're also part of the uh, Women in Finance um, Charter. We're part of the, we were approached by the ABI for the Flexible Working Charter. And these aren't tokenisms. I mean, flexible working, we, we have full-time roles, part-time roles. We now do job share. So we're actually effective as a team. And let me just touch on, we invited Joe Ascott as well um, to speak on diversity. And let me say what she's done for life search that people haven't actually realized yet. We took censorship last year, and then we took censorship again this year. This year, we suddenly had way more disabled people than we had last year. We haven't hired more disabled people, but we have people at LiveSearch who now feel more comfortable with actually saying, yes, I am disabled. So even though we've got an amazing culture already, people now feel even more open to be honest and just basically say, actually, yes, I am disabled. They can speak freely. That is the direction we're going into. And as I said, I could keep you here for quite a while <laughs> telling you everything we've done on the squad. You, you lead me on to the very next question I was going to ask, but, but uh, that list of achievements... Well, it shouldn't impress me. I should know all about it because I'm still just the CEO of the business. Uh, but but the truth is, yeah, I do know about all of those things, but I hadn't really put them into the sequence that you are describing, which is one that fits them exactly. Uh, that is what has uh, uh, radically improved what I thought was absolutely fine to begin with, to be honest, pretty much anyway. Um, and uh, now I'm looking at it and go, goodness me, it wasn't fine at all. Uh, it's a lot better now. I bet you there's still a way to go. Um, but yes, that that incidence of the the before and after, the number of people who told us they were disabled that hadn't before, the hidden disabilities or what are they the invisible disabilities? Yes, are yes. Um, are a huge huge factor, which uh, has, I think probably been the single biggest thing that, that life searchers across the company have suddenly twigged. And I was talking to a franchise owner today, and he said I had no idea. That Maddie Gunn was was you know, suffered the way she does and, yeah. and lived with what she does, and um, I just think that, that that's that's one uh, searcher, a franchise owner who's just a, a better person for knowing that. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, and in fact, that's where we we need to take all of this next. Actually, it's we the franchises are separate businesses entirely, but we need to encourage them as much as we can to uh, do this stuff within their own. Uh, self-employed groupings. I'm also a, a member of the, the Fairness and Diversity Squad. One of the things it so brilliantly enables, because it's, I mean, anyone can join from any part of the business, Yeah. but Andrew Parker, the head of people and culture, chairs that uh, those meetings once a month to twice yes. a month. And it yeah. means that anyone from across the business who has a, a problem can bring it up during that meeting and just and speak directly to him. And so the head of people and culture in other business, businesses, it would be the head of HR, can is is there and can react to it at a moment's notice. It has teeth. We we have we actually have a committee with teeth rather than just one yes. tokenism. And and in this context, teeth that make things better <laughs> rather than teeth that make bite things. and cause pain. Um, <laughs> Teeth is a tricky old word in this case. Well, we, well, because it's, I, I suppose Andrew does sometimes bite the board and say, "Sort <laughs> this out." But we, we're really not—we're um, not running away from him. We're going, uh, you know, tell us more. What should we do? But yes, you have influence, genuine influence, yes, uh, from from top to bottom. Hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, that's—I think that's very much part of, of Life Search's leadership approach. 
Um, in fact, we should find ways of doing more of that because there are lots of uh, lots of unfairnesses in life search that have nothing to do with diversity. They're just general mm. general unfairnesses that go on in any organisation. Are there any particular leaders that you want to reference, shout out as as having having had a particular effect on you? This is actually a, a bittersweet one. This uh, question, <laughs> I'll tell you why at the end. Oklahoma, Tulsa, Greenwood, basically nineteen twenties. It was a whole city known as Little Africa, and some people called it Black Wall Street. Yeah. You had black bankers, black leaders in industry. We even had a black press. When was the last time you heard of a black printing press? And these were people who were formerly slaves, and they had managed through all this adversity to basically create this amazing, buzzing town. The city got burnt to the ground by a vengeful mob, who thought that, um, I don't know, that they, something was being stolen from them. Both Melvin and I were a little hazy on the details of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, so I thought I would add this in. On the morning of the 30th of May, a young black man named Dick Rowland was riding in an elevator with a white woman named Sarah Page. The details of what followed vary, accounts of an incident circulated amongst the city's white community and became more exaggerated with each telling. Tulsa police arrested Dick Rowland the following day and began an investigation. An inflammatory report appeared in the local newspaper and it spurred a confrontation between black and white armed mobs around the courthouse where the sheriff and his men had barricaded the top floors to protect Rowland. Shots were fired and the outnumbered African-Americans retreated to their homes in the Greenwood district. Greenwood was then looted and burned by white rioters. Black Tulsans fought valiantly to protect their community, but in the end, the city's African-American population was simply outnumbered by the white invaders. Martial law was declared, and the National Guard arrived, taking African-Americans out of the hands of the vigilantes and imprisoning all black Tulsans. Over 6,000 people were held for as long as eight days. The restoration of Greenwood after its destruction was left to the victims. With Tulsan officials turning away some offers of outside aid, a number of individual white Tulsans provided assistance to the city's now virtually homeless black population. In recent years, there has been discussion about what to call the event. Historically, it's been called the Tulsa Race Riot. Some say it was given that name for insurance purposes, designating what happened a riot prevented insurance companies from having to pay benefits to the people of Greenwood. Whatever its name, the violence lasted for 24 hours. 35 city blocks were destroyed, more than 800 people were treated for injuries, and at the time, authorities believed that 36 people died. That figure is now believed to be closer to 300. Everything I've just read comes from tulsahistory.org. If you want to learn more, I would suggest starting there. Basically, Google just Google 1920s Greenwood, and yeah. you'll get you'll get that um, story. So I just find it amazing that there was a black printing press, and you, as you know, propaganda is a huge thing, and controlling newspapers is a huge thing. Yeah. They they did that. Black bank managers, but you know, just but we've sort of almost gone backwards since then. Have we? Um, I don't think we've gone particularly forwards. I, I don't remember any. Um, powerful black um printing presses anywhere and you know if you control the media you control the narrative 
I get you. I get you. I mean, yes, we we have you know we have made a lot of progress. I think me saying we've gone backwards is is, is way too strong. We there's undoubtedly um, progress has been made, but I think the frustration is just progress is slow, um, and, and that's sure. probably where the frustrations come from. Hundred years ago, yeah. So for me, every single person that died in that fire was basically a hero. Anybody who basically get success when everything and industry and the whole system is rigged against them, to me, is a hero. So you have people like Martin Luther King, died for his beliefs. You had Muhammad Ali, loves boxing, but gave up some years of his boxing because he didn't want to go to a foreign land to kill people for a flag flown by people who didn't really care much about him. You have Sidney Poitier, loves Sidney Poitier, first black man to slap a white man on TV. I don't know whether you've seen the film In the Heat of the Night. Amazing film. Yeah. And then Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks, there's currently a book about her in America, an animated book for six to seven-year-olds, just to teach six to seven-year-olds what happened. It's been banned in Texas because I said it's critical race theory. Shocking. I know. <laughs> the reason why I said it's bittersweet is because I said I came over when I was six. I went to an all-white school. I went to a university, all-white people. I didn't learn about any black leaders, any black icons. The leaders and icons that I know of are just ones that I picked up over the years. Hmm. Now, I'm just thinking if maybe they had taught us more at school about black leaders and black icons, would we have made more progress with diversity and equality now? Yeah. Oh, absolutely, we would have. And, and it, it was part of a, a vast, unconscious, but also in many cases conscious agenda to stop that whole thing from happening. Yeah. Uh, to, 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 to restrict diversity, to retain privilege. Yeah. Um, indeed, boarding school is one of the most effective methods of retaining privilege known to man. Um, but uh, yeah. wh- where did you come to Britain from? Or England I came from? from Nigeria. So I escaped, um, basically yeah. it was to escape coups. Yes. Nigeria back in the early, early 80s, late 70s, there's pretty much a coup every year. <laughs> the government will basically have a government, then the army takes over, then hands back to the government, then back again. We actually lived near the airport <laughs> because we just thought, well, if there's a coup, we can get out of the country really, really quickly. So we were lucky enough for that. Some other people went. Uh, Gosh. And then you came over here and plunged into this white world. I dropped into boarding school. So my family stayed there. So I just basically spent time at the school. I had foster care and, and holidays, that sort of thing. And just did that from the age of six to... What, 11, 12, then went to my second board school to 18 and then went to university. I think I've, I've, I first uh, really heard you speak, Melvin, on the Fairness and Diversity Squad when I, I listened to in on some of the early calls, was part of some of the early meetings. And um, I, I, I wondered why your voice hadn't been heard before. And I haven't asked, I haven't done a, done a, a review, but... Um, did, did, was Do you think that Life Search was slow to spot your leadership potential and, and develop you as a leader? And was that because of your personality or because of your colour or because of Life Search? Um, see, it, it's a hard question because part of the, the stigma that's and the what, what drags and what haunts um, somebody such as myself, somebody black, I suppose, is you sometimes want to appease people. You become a people pleaser. And so everywhere you go, you make yourself small. You don't want to rock the boat too much. You want to get on with everybody. And you want to do um, what what's right. And sometimes if that means sacrificing a, a position or sacrificing yourself, you just tend to just do that. Um, 
with life search, I knew the probability for for increasing w- would be there, um, but I also knew that because of the when it comes to minorities and leadership positions, there are few and far between. So I thought it'd be very very hard to break ground on that point, but I was hopeful because put it this way, the first day I came to life search, um, I came into the to the interview room, and there were four of us. So it was an interview panel. But there were three of us who were black and one person who was white being interviewed. Okay. And that just gave me hope. I was just like, oh, this is amazing. <laughs> because, you know, black people in office in, in office roles, you don't generally tend to see that much. It's always been a been a hard thing. But I was just really, really impressed. We had three black people being interviewed and one white person. So the white person was in a minority being interviewed. And I got the job that day. Everybody else got um, sent away. So I knew from them that there was something different. And lo and behold, you know, staying longer, saw the culture, saw how things were, probably took longer than I would have liked at Life Search, but I knew it happened eventually and it has started happening. So sometimes it just takes a bit of time. But I can't tell you whether that was down to maybe being too quiet, that whether that was down to my colour. I, I can't really answer that one at the moment. Fair enough. That's a tough one. Fair enough. No, <laughs> no, no. no. I mean, it, it, yeah. yeah. I suspect suspect that not being able to answer it is as good as one can hope for yes yeah there isn't a clear and clear i i, I wouldn't um clear and clear say oh um i'm a minority they weren't interested it doesn't i don't think it works like that because i know lots of people who've not been able to progress who are not minorities as well yeah. i think one of the things we actually discussed in the diversity team is that we have a lot of good retainment at life search but does that mean we become stagnant so how do we have and maintain good retainment of people without becoming stagnant? So that's another thing that we're going to um, work on on a diversity team. A lot of people do stay. We have leaders who stay for a long time. So if leaders are staying, how do you get into those positions? How do you um, grow? Yes, my, my route to ach- achieving the development of careers while uh, retaining everybody is you've got to grow the whole business. You've got to create more and more and more leaders. Absolutely. Yeah. In the last few years, our focus has been actually much more on increasing productivity than on, on headcount, if you like. And uh, so that then that defeats that purpose as a side effect. But uh, yeah, yeah, retention is a very good thing until it blocks, uh, blocks talent. Um, uh, and HR law exists to protect people from uh, overzealous bosses going you know what i think i might just improve this leader you can go and you can come in have a go here um that's not uh, that's not easy to do in fact in fact it shouldn't be shouldn't be done and what, what what does being a good leader mean to you being a good leader aspire to inspire and inspire to aspire it's always been the same i want to take somebody from a to b and see them grow and develop has always been the best thing um, for me. Um, having a positive influence on somebody's life and having a positive impact for me is a great thing. And um, and if I haven't had a positive influence on somebody's life, I think I'd have failed as a leader. That's simple. I think that's a great note to uh, to wrap up on. Absolutely. Actually. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Marvin. No problem at all. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thank you, Melvin, for your time inside or outside Life Search. I always know that talking to you will be an absolute pleasure. If you have enjoyed this or any other episode of Searching for Elephants and want to write in to say anything 
anything you want really, then please go ahead. Email me at angusbagery at lifesearch.co.uk and have your say. Next week, after over two decades in the job, Tom Bagery is stepping aside as LifeSearch's CEO and a fantastic lady by the name of Debbie Kennedy is taking over. Hear Debbie chat to Tom and I right here on Searching for Elephants. <laughs>